I, uh, I'll start this way. You know, there are, there are just moments when you know God loves you. And uh, I had one of those moments, uh, it was a number of years back at this point, I hate to even count how many years back it was, but we had taken the boys to Disney uh, when they were 11 and 13. And so just to kind of torture them a little extra, we took them to the Cinderella's Royal Table, which is the meal for the princesses inside of Cinderella's castle there. And so it, it was neat to go because of the, you know, getting to go inside the castle, but it was even more fun because you, you just got to see them, you know, just at that really awkward age when the princesses would come and fawn all over them and, and they didn't know whether to say, wow, she's really pretty or, or gosh, I'm really embarrassed. But it was just, it was a, it was a wonderful time, except for one thing. There was this little kid. He was about five and he just, I mean, my goodness, the boy could not behave. He just, he was into everything. I mean, he was, he, was, he was standing up when he should sit down. He was on the floor when he should have been in his chair. He was picking things up. He was banging this all to this kind of, you know, constant cadence of ineffective, stop doing that, stop doing that, stop doing that by his parents. And it, just, it was distracting really the entire restaurant, which, which took effort given, you know, how boisterous the restaurant was to begin with. And at a certain point, the kid picked up his mom's camera, which he should not have had because he was maybe five. And this was what, like a big camera with a giant flash on it and so forth that was there. And this was that moment when you just knew God does love me because he had the camera turned the wrong way, maybe six inches from his face. And somehow he set off the flash. The flash was set at some level where they could have used it in London during the Blitz to try to see the planes that were going overhead, and it hit him like a ton of bricks right in the face. He was, he was blinded like Paul on the road to Damascus suddenly here, and he was incapable of misbehaving for the rest of the meal because it, it so stunned him at that point. Everyone in the restaurant gave one of those sort of silent, you know, kind of moments like that. And the, the one word that just, you know, just, it just leapt into my head was justice, justice. That's, oh, thank you, Lord. Um, it's just, justice is, is one of those topics that is never very far from our minds. It is there from the time we are little kids. I mean, I think before we can crawl, we have this very keen sense of what's fair and what's not fair. Just give a, a slightly bigger thing to one kid as opposed to the other, and you will see how quickly that sense of justice leaps out. We, we just know it. I mean, think of all the things that we do, even, even when we're little kids, to, to work out things fairly, whether it's flipping a coin or drawing straws or eeny, meeny, miny, moe, or, or pick a number between, or uh, this was always a good rule in our family, you know, one person cuts and the other one gets to pick, right, just so we can keep it fair um, there. You know, truthfully, I, I think even animals have a sense of justice about them. We, uh, we babysat my, uh, my parents' uh, lab, and if you give one of the labs, we have a lab of our own, you give one of the labs a larger treat than the other, 
or give them two and the other one one, and you will see a look of betrayal on the face of the other one that says, what have I done? I'm, I'm nothing but faithful. It was actually, it was a, it was, I don't know where one could find it. I bet if you search on the web, you could find the video of it. But they were doing something with a particular kind of monkey, and they would have two sorts of treats that they would give to them. One was just a, a plain sort of, you know, whatever treat, and the other one, which was apparently the prized treat, was a grape. And so they would give the, the one monkey the, the plain treat, and it would take it. They'd give the other monkey the plain treat, and it would take it. And then they would give the, the one monkey a grape, and then they would try to give the other monkey the plain treat. The second monkey would have a come apart that would have done the little kid at Cinderella's royal table justice. I mean, it just absolutely just begins, you know, uh, pounding on its cage and so forth. This is a monkey. And yet it has this keenly developed sense of justice. When you don't get what you're supposed to get, we, we, we always think seemingly in terms of, is that fair? Is that not fair? Is that just? Is that not just? There is no book of the Bible that is more consumed with issues of justice than is the book of Job. Job is a book that even, even after 2,500 years, it feels like one of the most modern works of the ancient world. You, you read it and it, just, it feels like it could just be something right out of today because of its keen sense of justice. It wrestles with the same sorts of issues that we wrestle with in our minds on a daily basis when we think about justice. There is this profound sense of injustice that lingers over the world that we feel. We, we like the idea of a good person who does well. And truthfully, we, we like the idea of a bad person sort of getting their comeuppance. In fact, we might even like the second part better than the first part um, that's there. But more often than not, those moments when the scales seem to be balanced properly... They seem to be the exception rather than the rule. If I had a nickel for every time a car goes zipping past me on the interstate at some exorbitant speed playing Frogger, cutting you know, back and forth in between lanes while they're distracted by something and using their cell phone and then eventually finding that they are, are cut off or I'm sorry, pulled over by a, a cop. I, I, it, I'd have to borrow money to get gum out of a gumball machine because it just it seems like they do it with impunity. You, you never seem to see them pulled over. If you had a nickel for every time you've been cut off by that person, I could build the Taj Mahal. It, it's, they, they never really seem to get caught, and yet I live in perpetual fear. I mean, there's nothing quite like that fear of when something blue happens behind you while you're driving that you're, oh, it's me, you know, I'm the one they're after. Why, why didn't that person get it? It just, it doesn't feel like justice really happens the way that we want it to. And yet, and yet, there is a profound sense in which the world works in a just way. I mean, we, we know from experience that, that people who eat better, by and large, have better health outcomes. And we know that when we work hard and when we work wisely, for the most part, we tend to advance in our careers and eventually make more money. 
We, we know that if we avoid a, a get-rich-quick scheme, that for the most part, we're less likely to lose our shirts in some sort of investment. We, we know that if we don't smoke, we, we probably won't get lung cancer. And if we drink in moderation, we probably won't get cirrhosis. And I mean, the, the truth is we have actuaries who work all of this stuff out so well that they can put it in a table for you to look at and figure out what uh, the, the future holds. It, it's, it's the whole basis of the advice that we give to our kids in some sense is, you know, I, I was having conversations just with my son when he was here this last week about if you, if you input this, you're more likely to get output of this. The, the world, well, it, it does work in a just way in some sense. And yet, and yet, <laughs> we all know of a healthy person who has died young. And we all know of a person who's worked hard and worked wisely and been mistreated by the system. We all know that actuarial tables hinge on large groups and averages. And they tend to break down when it's just one particular person. See, we're, we're caught in this dilemma of a world that's both just and unjust at the same time. That if you, if you work it out over a long period of time and a lot of people, you can find a certain sense of things working, but in another sense, there's always that element of it's not quite working. And Job is the perfect example of someone for whom the actuarial tables broke down and broke down in a serious way. And it's not just Job. I mean, Jesus touched on this theme a few times. You remember that particular scene where um, the, the, uh, the disciples are walking along and they see the man who was born blind? And you remember the question that they asked Jesus, uh, who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? See, they're, they're following the actuarial tables, right? You know, they, they understand, well, if there's a bad outcome, it must be because there was a bad input. And we just want to know, who, who was it who did it? Was it his parents or was it him who had sinned? Which is kind of an interesting thought there when it says that he was born blind. So was it him or was it his parents who had sinned? How would it be him? You know, prenatally, did he, you know, kick one too many times against mom's bladder or something like that? You know, what, what exactly does that even look like? So here, here we have um, an example where Jesus says, well, it's neither one. Something else is at work here. Or you remember, in fact, this is a pretty obscure passage. Though we walked, uh, those of you who were with me a few weeks ago, we walked right underneath this. We didn't actually get to see it, uh, but when we were in Hezekiah's tunnel, uh, while Jimmy was bumping his head in front of me at least 200 times and crying out against divine justice, um, when, we, when we walked under it, there's a place called Siloam, and Jesus says this, this it's a passage in uh, Luke 13, it says, at that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. In other words, these were people doing something religious and, and Pilate had killed some of them. Jesus asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? In other words, this didn't happen to them because they were particularly bad. And he goes on in, in verse 4, this is Luke 13, he says, or those 18 who were killed when the tower of Siloam fell upon them. That was where we walked right underneath there at Hezekiah's tunnel. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? Jesus is saying it is not as simple as some algorithm that you input sin 
and you get out punishment. There are more complicated kinds of issues that are going on there. There are issues of justice and injustice, prosperity and suffering that are difficult and even maddening for us. I imagine that if you are like me and struggle at times with spiritual doubt, that issues of suffering and injustice are at the forefront of what you struggle over. It's the piece that's difficult to get your head around because you're having to balance the notion of an all-loving and all-powerful God with a world that doesn't seem to reflect that love and ability to do something about it. That's what we struggle with if we struggle. I, I don't struggle with science issues or anything like that. I, I love science, and I, and I can read the Bible in a way that I don't have to worry about those sorts of what I think, frankly, are just sort of silly conflicts between the two. That, that doesn't bother me. I don't really struggle with, you know, like how, how am I supposed to read my Bible? And, well, this guy says one thing and this guy says another. Well, I mean, God, God used human beings to write the Bible. And so it's God's word and a human word at the same time. I don't struggle with that any more than I struggle with the notion that Jesus is God and yet he gets tired or hungry. Those things are just above my pay grade. When I get to heaven, you know, I'll, I'll say, okay, you know, so, so explain that. Because I'm sure that will be at the top of the list of what we're doing in heaven is having God, you know, work out all the things that we struggled with while we were here on earth. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't struggle with those issues. But boy, do I struggle when you see someone, God, like my grandmother, who was the most saintly person I know of and died miserably from Alzheimer's. That's the part that makes you struggle. I just don't care if King says that Josiah died at Megiddo and Chronicles says that he died in Jerusalem. I, it's just not that important to me. It's awfully important to me when I see suffering that I just can't quite compute. I'm not gonna give up my faith over it. I know that the other direction is a path that, that is literally hopeless. Then I'm not gonna trade the possibility, the hope, that my grandmother was eventually welcomed into the loving arms of Jesus for saying that her life and her death really had no meaning whatsoever. I'm not gonna do that. But it doesn't mean I don't struggle in the here and now with these issues. Job is a book that is consumed with these issues. Job is a book that it, it revolves around, in fact, it, it wants to push something about as far as you can push it on this particular issue to say, let's wrestle with this topic of justice. You know, sometimes there are movies that will kind of skirt around things or books that will skirt around things. And then there are some that say, no, we're not skirting around this one. We're just gonna have to look at this one in all of its brutality. You might think of say, the, the opening scenes of Saving Private Ryan, if you wanna think about D-Day and think, you know, we're not just gonna have, you know, a, a, a ricochet of a bullet and John Wayne will fall down to the ground or something like this. We're gonna see this in all of its awfulness. If you've seen uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, you know, whether the old one or the new one, you get that sense of we're going to see this in all of its awfulness. This is Job. Job does not pull any punches when it deals with this issue of justice and injustice. 
42 chapters of it, making it truthfully one of the longest books in the Bible. If you step outside of the Torah, where you get Genesis, which is 50 chapters, well, gee, that's the only one that actually matches Job. Because Exodus is only 40 and Leviticus is 27 and, and Numbers is only 36 or 38. I don't do much in Numbers. And, and Deuteronomy is 34. It's, Job is a very long book. It's, it's one of the most important works in Scripture for dealing with this topic. So how are we going to approach it? Well, first of all, in, in terms of the story, the story is pretty straightforward. Uh, you, you know the story. It starts off with this man from the east, meaning he's from Mesopotamia. Isn't that interesting? He's a Gentile. And so here's this story that has this guy who worships Jehovah, and yet he's a Gentile there, and he's both righteous and rich. But then he loses all of it in the course of an afternoon at the hands of this mysterious figure that we'll spend an entire Sunday looking at, whose name is the Satan. Um, and actually, every time in Hebrew when they say it, it's got the word the in front of it. It's the Satan here. We'll have to talk more about that. And at the beginning, Job accepts his suffering just as stoically as one can imagine. In fact, I'll, I'll eventually say I just think Job's in denial uh, at the beginning of the story. He accepts it, and when he accepts his suffering, he is comforted by his three friends who sit there quietly with him. But then Job begins to lament in chapter 3, and the friends are no longer content to be silent once Job begins to speak up. And so for chapter after chapter, these characters go back and forth, Job versus Eliphaz, and then Job versus Bildad, and Job versus Zophar. They, they go back and forth there, and, and eventually the arguments reach a, a climax as Job demands a hearing from God. And he gets one, except that the, the hearing turns out to be several chapters, be beautiful chapters, mind you, of divine browbeating of Job, which is exactly what Job had said would happen. If I get an audience with God, he's just going to bully me. And that seems like that's what happens. And so finally you reach the last chapter and Job... Well, I don't know, what does Job do exactly in that last chapter? We, we are weeks away from figuring that one out. If we're going to figure it out at all, it is quite ambivalent about what Job does in that last chapter, whether he repents or recants or something altogether different there. And then in the end, Job is restored, and he gets his health and his wealth back. It's a, it's a pretty straightforward story. So why did it take 42 chapters to tell it? Well, it's because it's, it's not just one story. The Job that we have is already the product of reading and rereading and rereading again this particular character's story. There was originally, I will, I will make the case, a, a figure named Job. Now, the, the book of Job is somewhat distant. Uh, from that figure whose name was Job. And probably the earliest story of Job was just the prose at the beginning and the end. They're, they're quite different than, the, than what you find in the middle. And so you had this story about this guy who suffers and eventually is restored. And somebody reread that story. And they took that story and they put in those poetic dialogues that were in there. That was the first time. Well, 
I don't know, maybe the second time that Job was reread. But you know, when you read the poetry, there's a section of poetry that doesn't really match any of the rest of it. It's this section from a guy by the name of Elihu. And, and well, Elihu is another rereading of the story of Job. As he says, boy, I, I'm not sure I find this satisfying. And so he comes up, and, and God bless him, he does a lot of, y'all need to listen to me while I talk, but he never gets around to saying anything. Um, and so he just, he talks, and he talks, and he talks, and he... And, well, but that's not the last of the rereadings because, well, we, we reread it again in the post-biblical period. And then we reread it again in the church fathers. And then we reread it again when we're in the Middle Ages. And we are rereading it again all the way to the present day. This is a, a book that, my goodness, has it been read and reread a lot. It informs the story of Milton's Samson Agonistes. It is there behind the brothers Karamazov from Dostoevsky. You, some of you will know Archibald MacLeish's play, J.B. You may know um, the, uh, the, the series of paintings, which was the study by William Blake. Or if not that, uh, maybe you've seen the Woody Allen movie, Crimes and Misdemeanors. Um, Crimes and Misdemeanors is the story of Job. Um, it is, uh, it's got uh, Sam Waterston, I, I always fear that I've gotten his name wrong, the guy from Law and Order, not the guy who does Calvin and Hobbes. Is it Waterston? Is that right? Just, just shake your heads and say, yeah, yeah, absolutely, Jeff, and then we'll find out later. Um, he's, he's God in the, in the movie. He's a rabbi who's going blind. And meanwhile, Alan Alda's character is bad but succeeds, while Woody Allen's character is good but fails. It's this story of Job all the way through it. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating uh, book. Uh, just recently, Terrence Malick came out with a movie called Tree of Life, which is the book of Job. This is an endlessly fruitful story because we can read it and reread it again and consider these kinds of issues all over again. But we do have to get one thing out of the way just right out of the, out of the gate here. And that is, what exactly is Job? What, in other words, what genre does Job fit into? Because there's a, it's something that I don't think y'all are going to struggle with quite as much as maybe some of my students at Sanford will struggle with or, or, or my parents, for example. But we tend to place a premium as Westerners on historical literature. And we, we even have ways of kind of couching that in there where we'll say something like, if there's something that's really, you know, kind of outrageous, that, that, but it, my, my story of the little guy with the flash, right? If I want to affirm to you that this really happened, I can say, true story. So then, what are stories that didn't happen? Are they false? So, for example, what if we're dealing with a story like the Good Samaritan? You understand, there is no good Samaritan. There was no guy, and he didn't get beaten up, and nobody passed him by, and nobody helped him, and there's no hotel. None of those things ever happened. And you know this, because it's a parable, right? But just in the process of my going through and saying, there is no good Samaritan, I saw the looks on your faces. You know that it's a parable, and yet some of you were like, well, I don't know how I feel about that. What are you saying? That this story isn't true? On the contrary, of course it's true. But it's not true because it's happened. It's not true because it's history. It's true because it's a parable. And the way parables are true is if their message is true. 
There is no prodigal son. I mean, truthfully, there's three and a half billion prodigal sons out there. But there's no prodigal son in the story of the prodigal son. And there were no pigs and there, there was no wine, women, and song. And there was no father and so forth. None of those things happened because it's a parable. But it doesn't mean that the story of the prodigal son is not true. Of course it's true. Because in parables, what's true is the message of the parable. So when we come to the book of Job, part of what we have to wrestle with is, is what sort of story is this exactly? And I, I, I want to turn to something, and it's a concept that I talk about it so much that I feel confident. I've probably talked about it with you. I looked back at my notes for, we've been doing this for just about a decade now, and I could not find a place where I had actually uh, discussed this with us together. But if we have, just Pretend like you've forgotten what I said before, and this is all brand new, and it's all wonderful and so forth. We have this thing called genre competence. I know it's the first time you ever heard those words from me. Um, genre competence, it's, it's the most fascinating thing. It's part of, I think, how uh, God has created us and gifted us with the gift of language. That we are able to sort of pick out what kind of story we are hearing without anyone telling us what the rules of that story are. And that the illustrations I usually use with my students, because God bless them, they don't read anything, and they don't see anything other than the office. I, I, or Parks and Rec, I think, is the other one. If I, if I, from time to time, I will foolishly say something about Moby Dick, I may as well be speaking like Russian to them. They have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, but if I say parkour uh, from the office, suddenly everybody perks up because they know what I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning here. I'm going to assume a greater level of sophistication from y'all. So I'll start with one of the classics. You've seen The Jungle Book, right? There we go. You notice I said seen, not read. Uh, you've seen <laughs> the Jungle Book. Some of you have read it. Um, it's a, the, the movie and the book have nothing to do with one another, um, and deliberately so. If, you, if you've seen the Jungle Book, you, you actually know going in that Shere Khan is not going to kill Mowgli. It's just such a well-done movie that it can actually inspire a little bit of that fear in you that Mowgli might die. Now, if you step back a little bit, you know that can't happen. Mowgli's not going to die in a Walt Disney movie from the 1960s or something. It just can't happen. Now, it pushes us a little bit with Baloo because, truthfully, Baloo's not going to die either. But there is that scene, especially when you're watching it for the first time, and you see the, the light that's shining on him there, and you go, wow, Baloo actually died. No greater love is what Bagheera does there. I don't think they're quoting that kind of verse in Disney movies nowadays. But no greater love hath any man than that he lay down his life for his friends there. You get that. But truthfully... We know Baloo's not going to die. And that's why he comes back and, oh, there's so much more. Come on, keep going. It's, we know what the rules are for the movie, and no one has to tell us for us to know them. If you've seen the wonderful movie Up, Up is it's the best thing. The first 10 minutes of, of Up are the best thing Pixar's ever done. Um, there's that cute little guy, Russell, who's in there. And there are several points in the movie where you're terrified that Russell's going to die. 
I mean, there's, there's the scene where he's on the, the front porch as, as Mr. Fredrickson's house is flying overhead with the balloons attached, and you're worried, please let him in. He's going to fall off the porch. No, he is not going to fall off the porch. Even better, there's the scene where he's tied up and, and he's sliding slowly down the, the gangway of the zeppelin that's there, and, and you're, you're, you suspend disbelief in all sorts of areas. You have the dogs that are flying fighter jets down there, and we're willing to accept that, and yet we're terrified that somehow Russell is going to slip off the gangway and die on the sharp rocks below, when if we step back, we, we know that's not going to happen. We know what kind of movie it is, and there's just no way that we're going to have In Memory of Russell come up at the end of the movie because he didn't make it. Now, there are other movies, and it's perfectly fine for someone to die in them. If you watch Jurassic Park, God bless him, the lawyer never had a chance. From the moment that we were introduced to him, we knew, you will not be long for this earth. There is a dinosaur waiting for you. But the two most terrifying scenes in the movie, they both have to do with the characters that there is no way Spielberg was going to kill. It's the two kids. Whether they are there getting attacked by the T-Rex or with a velociraptor coming after them in the kitchen, we know that they're not going to die, and yet you are on the edge of your seat going, you know, please. When little Timmy is hanging on to the wires while Laura Dern is about to throw the power back on there, and we're going, Timmy, let go. Timmy, let go. Why? Are we really going to see, like, the charred corpse of Timmy hanging on that will come and scrape him off later? No, we know that's not going to happen. Because we know what genre Jurassic Park is. Now, if you read the books, Michael Crichton is actually writing in a much different genre than what the movies are. And so kids do die in the books. There, I hate to spoil it, but by now it's been 30 years. You should have watched it. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you watch Jaws, you, you actually expect people to die. In fact, even little kids die in the movie Jaws, but if you work it out, you, you know who's supposed to die. Truthfully, everybody's supposed to die except for Sheriff Brody, because Jaws is Moby Dick, and Sheriff Brody is Ishmael, and Quint is Captain Ahab, and the Great White is the, the, the White Whale, and, and uh, Richard Dreyfuss' character Hooper, he's Queequeg. You remember he's going to kill the shark with the harpoon that's there, and so everyone should have died except for Sheriff Brody because that's the way that uh, Moby Dick ends. And if you read the book, that's the way it works out. When they were filming the movie, they accidentally caught Richard Dreyfuss swimming off from the scene in which he was supposed to die, and they didn't want to refilm it. And so they just let him live. Um, and so that's the way that they departed from uh, Moby Dick there. We, we know what the rules are and we know going in. And we also know when movies push the rules. There was a movie that I cannot actually confess to having watched. It just happened to be owned in the same room that I was uh, in when I, I was working on my computers. My, my sons were with their cousins and they were watching Bridge to Terabithia. If you've seen Bridge to Terabithia, they killed the girl. I, when, when they came and told you know, whatever the kid's name is, you know, um, you know so-and-so died, I was like, no, she didn't. She's, she's going to come back. They killed the girl. What? It, I'm telling you, it kind of pushed some rules in there. There, there, are, there are scenes that, well, in fact, sometimes things push the rules to the degree that we want to fix them. You, you understand that's where the term bodlerize comes from? 
there was an actual guy named Thomas Bodler, and he didn't like the way Shakespeare's plays ended, so he fixed them. And so he would go through, and I mean, and, and you can understand why. Oh my goodness, you want to talk about bleak? You, you watch the end of Romeo and Juliet, it never gets any better. Or even worse, King Lear. Oh my goodness. You just you hope for just a glimmer of light at the end of Lear and Cordelia dies. There's nothing. And so they, they fix it. They, they did this with uh, Ernest Hemingway's novels when they, there was a, uh, they would turn them into made-for-TV movies. <laughs> and they kept trying to fix them and turn them into happy endings and things. It's because, well, we, we kind of know what the rules are and we know what we want the rules to be. And when they push those, it, it presses up against, no, there's got to be a happy ending here if you've seen Princess Bride. It's a wonderful movie about genre. And in the scene where Wesley finally dies and the little kid goes, wait, no, he can't die. They've got to like, he and Buttercup have to kiss and so forth. And it's because we know what the rules are for these sorts of things. So why is it that we know what the rules are? Well, we know what the rules are because these are stories from our culture. What do we do when we encounter stories from another culture? You ever watched a foreign film? You ever watched something from Bollywood and go, I, the dancing's pretty, I don't know why they're doing that. Or you watch one of these Swedish movies, I've watched The Seventh Seal four times, I still just don't get it. I just, I, you know, and I, I, I'm a bright guy, but you know, the whole chess match between Max von Sydow and Satan there, it still makes no sense to me. I'm sure Swedes somewhere are just getting a wonderful thrill out of it. It's just, it's just not part of my culture. And so it doesn't make sense to me. I'll, I'll use a, an illustration here. Um, I have a younger brother. I have both a younger sister and a younger brother. We, uh, we recently welcomed the younger sister to the 50-plus club. Um, I, uh, I sent her a, a text and said, uh, it, it never gets any better um, from this point here. You've reached the half-century club. Your, your, your bones are going to ache and, uh, and so forth, but that's all I can offer you. Um, so uh, Karen's four years younger than I and Jonathan's seven years younger. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, Jonathan was, uh, he was telling me these jokes that are the kind that if you pay attention to, you can give the answer. So, you know, it's the one like, you know, if a, if a rooster lays an egg at the top of a barn that is perfectly pitched uh, in both directions and the barn is oriented east and west, which direction would the egg roll if you're in the northern hemisphere? Well, and of course the key is, Roosters don't lay eggs. Um, and so you're, you're sitting there going, Northern Hemisphere, and I've been trying to work it out. And, and, and for some reason, probably because there's no money to be made from such things, I am just fantastic at those kinds of, of jokes. And so Jonathan's telling me these, and I'm just killing every one of them. So finally, he goes for backup. He goes and gets a set of encyclopedias that we had um, those were the days, right? The printed encyclopedias. Um, and it was the, the volume that was called People from Other Lands. And he reads what purports to be like the national joke of Mexico. And he says, what do a comb and a guitar have in common? And I have nothing. I, I'm, not, I'm not even in the ballpark of having something. I don't even know how to give a bad answer to this. What do a comb and a guitar have in common? And finally, he reads to me from the encyclopedia. Neither one can climb a tree. I have no idea whatsoever why this is funny. There is somebody down in Mexico right now going, hey, 
do the one about the comb and the guitar again. But, but for me, I, I simply, I have, I have no idea what would make this funny because it's, it's, not, it's not part of my culture. Humor translates poorly. I was, I was telling our folks when we were on our Israel trip that I, I had a particular um, class when I taught in the summer at Samford, and of the 11 students, there were two American women and nine Chinese students. And when I would tell one of my jokes, which are as riotously funny, nothing. Absolutely nothing. I'm just getting poker faces from every one of the students there. And what made it worse was, was every once in a while, one of the students who spoke English better than the others would turn to the other students and explain in Chinese what the joke was, to which there would be eight additional responses. Uh. <laughs> it, it, it got to the point where I was, I was afraid to like tell a joke for getting my hand slapped again there. It was, it was a terrible moment. Why? Because, because jokes don't translate. When we go to the Bible, we are delving into a foreign culture. And we don't always know what the rules are for the stories. And our default is to say history. Because that's the genre we think is true. I want to make the case that Job is true. I'm not convinced Job is history. I think there probably was a historical figure named Job who suffered greatly. But the story of Job... It's kind of a stylized telling of that story for a purpose. In the same way that I imagine somebody walking from Jerusalem to Jericho had been robbed before, and Jesus takes that as sort of an everyman story and says, okay, now let's take that example and use it for a larger purpose. Let me uh, close by giving you an illustration from another text. There's a wonderful uh, story in Luke 16 that you've heard before. It goes this way. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was, uh, I think I skipped a line. Nope, there you go. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, "Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames." Abraham said, "Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you were in agony." Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from you uh, to here cannot do so. And no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. He said to him, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, when I'm doing this with my students, I always write up on the board. I say, Okay, is this history or a parable? Let's come up with the evidence for each. And so we'll do the history part first. And they come up with some good things. For example, it has a named character, Lazarus, in there. Not a single parable that Jesus tells ever has a named character. It's always a sower went out to sow or there was a man or something like that. 
never a named character. It has a historical figure, Abraham. None of the parables ever has that. And truthfully, it never actually says it's a parable. It just starts off with Jesus telling it. And so we, we put that up there and we say, okay, here's our evidence for it being history. The evidence for it being a parable is a lot bigger. We go to the other side and, and for example, we have context. <laughs> this occurs in a place where Jesus is telling one parable after another after another. We have this stylized language. There once was a man. It's kind of like, now, don't you hear me wrong on this. If we say once upon a time, you know what kind of story that is. It's a fairy tale, right? Now, this is not a fairy tale, but that language, there once was a man. It certainly sounds like the way that Jesus tells parables. It so clearly has a pedagogical purpose. Jesus is trying to get a point across. In fact, he's trying to get two points across, right? One is be kind to poor people. And then the other part, if someone goes back from the dead, someone, anyone, they won't listen. You know, who, whoever could he be talking about uh, in that passage there? It has this access to the divine realm where we, we know what's going on in the afterlife and so forth. And then one of the real keys for parables is hyperbole. Parables love hyperbole. You notice that the, the rich man isn't just rich, but he dresses in fine linen every day and he feasts sumptuously every day. And the poor man's not just poor. He just wants the crumbs that fall from the table. He doesn't want to like sit at the table, just the crumbs. And then that gratuitous line, even the dogs would come and lick his sores or, or, or how desperate is the rich man in the afterlife? Oh, just let him dip his finger in water so that he can come and touch my tongue for I'm in agony in these flames. It has this hyperbole that is there all over the place. So, well, what if we were to take those same characteristics and apply them to Job? So, for example, context, there are lots of similar kinds of parables about the righteous sufferer in the ancient Near East. I've studied a number of them from Babylon um, that, uh, that come up. Or maybe it's stylized language. Job starts off, there once was a man from the land of Uz. And then it has this language that just repeats itself over and over again in chapters 1 and 2, this kind of formulaic language that's there. Pedagogical purpose, it is so clearly meant to teach a lesson, to have us reflect on something. Access to the divine realm. You notice we go back and forth from earth to heaven, from earth to heaven. How do we know what's going on in this conversation with God. Hyperbole, Job's not just rich. It says he's the greatest man in all the East. He's not just righteous, but as one commentator puts it, he is positively saintly. Is he even human? The way that he responds to his suffering and suffering, my goodness, he loses everything. In the course of just a few moments, he's so physically racked that he's taking broken pottery and scraping himself there. And besides, doesn't it just seem unlikely that in the midst of some of the worst suffering a human being has ever experienced, that they would sit there for 39 chapters quoting obscure poetry back and forth to one another? It just, in other words, Job may be a historical figure, but what Job is coming to us as is something different. What are parables? Parables are thought experiments. They're wanting you to consider something. Do you remember the context in which the Good Samaritan comes up? Well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, well, let's think about who your neighbor is. And so he tells that parable. 
Well, what's Job for? Job's a thought experiment. I'll give you the secret now, and it'll take us the rest of the summer to unpack it. Job is about one particular idea. What would you do if God were to act outrageously? Now, on a long enough timeline, I do not believe that God acts outrageously. But in the moment, everyone believes that God acts outrageously. From Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why? To the suffering Job. Everyone feels that moment when God doesn't seem to be acting in accordance with what we believe about God. And what Job is trying to get us to wrestle with is when that moment happens, what are you going to do? Are you going to try to, well, I don't think I want to answer that question today. Because that's what Job is for. Job is less for the answer than it is for the question. What are we going to do in that moment? The way we're going to proceed this summer is I'm going to shamelessly borrow from Samuel Ballantyne's book, Have You Considered My Servant Job? And we're just going to consider one character after another in the book of Job to try to unpack this question. And by the end, we will not have solved Job's dilemma. But Job is worth working through for wrestling with the question, even if we don't ultimately come up with the answer. That's what we're going to do. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for the book of Job. Lord, what a difficult book, but difficult only because it's such a difficult thing to live in this world while we are tasting but not yet able to eat at the divine table. Lord, I pray that you'll bring us closer to you as we look into your word this summer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.